during, during the weeks leading up to Christmas, we've been looking at the first two chapters of Luke's gospel, and it's because, as we've talked about each week, that we want to spend some time meditating and, and really reflecting on this story, this Christmas story, that has this incredible power uh, to change our lives if we take it in. And so today we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. So I'm going to read the passage for us. If you want to turn there and follow along, or if you want to use one of the Bibles that are in the pews, you can find it on page 856. So Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. Let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, forever. And Mary remained with her, that is Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him just briefly as we prepare to talk about his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, we confess that you know us. You know how each and every one of us walked through these doors this morning. Um, Some of us perhaps even surprised to find ourselves in a church this morning. Um, Some of us hurting and searching for answers. Others of us excited to gather with your people and celebrate your grace. And still others confused and doubting and even skeptical. Um, Father, however we come this morning, we confess you know us. And we also confess that though it may look different in our lives, really we're all the same. We are all far more broken than we could ever know. And so together we stand in need of hope, and in need of good news, we need to be reminded this morning that though we are far more broken than we can imagine because of what you have done for us in Jesus, we are also far more loved and accepted and secure and approved of than we could have ever dared to dream possible. So, Father, we pray that you would take this good news, write it upon our hearts, and change us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Here's what I want us to think about this morning. Um, it's, it's meditating, and it's, uh, it's reflecting upon the Christmas story 
that led to very radical and dramatic change in Mary's life. In, in verse 46, Mary bursts into this beautiful poem or this song. It's often called the Magnificat because um, that's the very first word uh, in, in the Latin translation, um, and it's translated in English as magnifies. But I want you to think about this. It has been days since the angel Gabriel visited Mary and told her that she, a poor young virgin, would give birth to God's own son, Jesus. It's been days since that's happened. And you know, that's the last time we've heard Mary speak in Luke's narrative. This has been days since hearing this incredible news, and so she's been, she's been processing this news, uh, partly with her relative Elizabeth, who she's gone to visit, but she's been thinking, and she's been meditating, and she's been pouring over, and she's been reflecting until at last it changed her. This good news changed her. This Christmas story changed her, um, and she burst into this beautiful song. You know, this time of year, I, I drink a lot of hot tea. <laughs> um, religiously, actually, I drink it every night, which, you know, I didn't think about this before, but that, that feels very unmanly to admit that uh, to you right now. Um, I'll have to think about that some more later. But theologian um, Donald Whitney, he once drew a comparison between preparing tea and the biblical idea of meditation or reflection, as I'm going to call it, um, I, I won't give you the whole thing, but he basically said meditating and reflecting, it isn't like taking a bag of, of tea and just dipping it once or twice into hot water, right? He said it's, it's immersion and it's letting it steep until all the flavor has been extracted, uh, from that tea and permeates every bit of the water. Now, I don't know what your experience might be this morning with that word meditation. Um, perhaps you think about meditation as emptying your mind or something like that, but that's nowhere near the way the Bible uses that term or, or that idea. Um, it's about, in the Bible, it's about filling your mind. It's about filling your thoughts. It's envisioning and thinking out the implications about how I should feel, how I should live, what I should value because of this truth that I see in God's Word. And, th and really, that's why I've been using this word uh, that's more common to us this morning, reflection. That's what it is. See, this morning's question is, what was it that Mary was reflecting on? What was she pouring over? What was she steeping in so much so that it led to dramatic change in her life? Because if we want to experience the same kind of change, one that involves a deep and profound joy, uh, one that settles our identity, uh, but also gives shape and meaning and purpose to our lives, we've got to reflect on the same things that Mary reflected upon in the Christmas story. So there are three primary reflections in this song that I want us to think about. Here they are. First, there is a reflection on God's mercy in this song. 
And second, there's a reflection on God's upside-down kingdom. And third, there's a reflection on God's fulfilled promise. So those are our three points. Reflections on mercy, reflections on the upside-down kingdom, and reflections on God's fulfilled promise. First, reflections on mercy. It's reflecting on God's mercy that will set you free and change you deeply from the inside out. Do you realize that? Um, the, the Apostle Paul, I want you to think about this. The Apostle Paul said something incredible and amazing in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He wrote that it's God's kindness, that it's God's mercy that leads us to repentance. And if you reverse that order, you have entirely and completely lost the gospel, and missed the Christmas story, right? Repentance doesn't lead to God's mercy. It is His mercy that leads to change in your life, that leads to repentance, to true freedom, and deep inside-out change in your life. If you want to be changed by the Christmas story, you've got to reflect on. You've got to pour over and steep in God's mercy. Notice in verse 49 that Mary reflected on God's nature, in particular that He is mighty or that He is the mighty one, it might say in your translation. And then on His holiness, right? He is holy is His name, she says. Here's the wonder of the Christmas story. The Christmas story is the answer to the question, how can an all-powerful, perfectly holy God relate to sinners? How can the Almighty King, the one, from, the one for whom the very core of His being is absolutely opposed to sin, how can He have a relationship with you and me in all of our brokenness? And all of our fallenness and all of our corruption and all our twistedness and all our sinfulness. The answer is in the next line of Mary's song, verse 50. She's saying, He isn't just mighty, He isn't just holy, He is also merciful. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. And this is the wonder of wonders. Though perfectly holy and pure, He is also mercifully disposed to His creation. The psalmist in Psalm 113 reflects on this same wonder. He writes, the Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. You get this picture. The heavens that you open your eyes and see at night, he's saying the heavens cannot hope to contain his glory. And then he, and then it says, who is like the Lord who is seated on his throne on high? And then it comes, then this comes. Who is like this Lord who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. High, holy, and glorious, but He bends to us in His mercy. He comes to us in His mercy. Have you soaked and steeped in His mercy? Have you poured over and reflected upon His mercy to you? It has the power to change you. It's His mercy, His kindness that leads to repentance. 
A lot of my kids' coloring books, uh, they used to have those connect-the-dot pages in them. So you'd flip over a page, and you'd, uh, hopefully some of you remember doing these when you were a kid. Um, you turn the page, and there's this page with all these apparently random dots on the page. And it's not a picture of anything, but all the dots are numbered, you know. And, and, and the goal is to draw the lines connecting the dots. I, I feel silly explaining this to you. You connect them in order and sequence, right? Uh, but it's when you connect those dots in order and in their proper sequence um, that eventually a picture begins to appear um, until finally you've completed the connecting the dots and you have this picture of a dragon or a cowboy or something like that. Um, To reflect on God's mercy is to connect the dots of the Christmas story to your life and to be changed by it. That the Almighty, Holy God, who is seated on high, would have to stoop to us and send His Son into the world to save us. What does that mean? You've got to connect the dots. It must mean that we were so broken and so flawed and so sinful that we could not save ourselves. But He had to do everything for us, and He had to come, and He had to die for us. But see, the Christmas story is also saying that He was willing to die for us, right? That He was willing to exchange His throne for a manger, that the mighty God was willing to become vulnerable and breakable and killable for us. Why? Because he is a God of mercy. And how could connecting those dots and reflecting on that and pouring over that begin to change you? You Mary said something really, really odd in verse 48. She said, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. How is that odd? Slow down and listen to her. She says, I am humble and lowly, and they're going to be talking about me until the end of time. Right? She's saying, I'm lowly and I'm famous. Right? Do you hear it? I'm poor in spirit, but I'm bursting with confidence at the very same time. According to uh, philosopher and theologian Blaise Pascal, This is the definition of greatness. He wrote this, A man does not prove his greatness by standing at an extremity. Right? He's saying, A man doesn't prove his greatness by being super humble or by being super confident. But he goes on, But he proves his greatness by touching both extremities at once and filling all that lies between them, being utterly humble, and bursting with confidence at the same time. I mean, that's freedom, right? To be cured of every instinct in you towards superiority and arrogance and pride because nothing less than the death of God's own Son dying for you could save you. That won't just give me personal humility. It will do that. But that has the power to shape 
every relationship in my life. But at the same exact time to be cured of every inferiority complex, every insecurity and tendency that I have to wallow in my shame because the mighty holy God loved me so much that he was willing to give his own son for me. That won't just give me inner peace. It'll it'll do that. But that will give me deep and profound joy in the center of my being. And that will give me confidence that has the power to shape every relationship of my life. I've got to move on, but that's just the tip of the iceberg that we're talking about here. We've got to continue pouring over and steeping in His mercy if we're going to be changed and connect the dots in our lives. Okay, second, reflections on the upside-down kingdom. I am a, a doodler. Um, almost every piece of paper that I have in my office uh, has doodles on it, right? D- just little drawings and sketches and abstract designs and that kind of stuff. But the greatest doodle of all time has got to be the Necker Cube. Um, the Necker Cube is that, uh, that drawing of that transparent wire-framed cube, um, it, but it the cube, it has no visual cues, you know, to its orientation on the page, which is why you look at it one second and it appears to be facing one direction. And then you blink and your eyes kind of readjust to the image and then it appears like it's facing the other direction. Here's what I want to tell you. The Christmas story trains your eyes to readjust, to see God's upside-down kingdom. If you want to be changed by the Christmas story, you've got to reflect on the upside-down kingdom. You know, on first glance at the world, it seems so very, very obvious, painfully obvious to us even. I mean, who's on top? Who are life's winners? It's the achievers, right? It's those who've climbed to the top of the ladder, of the food chain. It's those who've arrived at positions of power and are in control. It's the successful. It's the wealthy, right? Those are the culture makers. Those are the people in control and in power. That's who's on top. And you know what we do? We naturally gravitate towards those people, towards the beautiful. That's who we want to be close to, towards the sophisticated, towards the strong, towards the wealthy. Why? Because We want to align ourselves with the winners in in this world, right? We want to be connected. That's the way the world works, we say. The way up is the way up. But that's just a first glance. It's reflecting on the Christmas story, right? Pouring over and steeping ourselves in this story that causes our eyes to readjust, to readjust and see God's upside-down kingdom. Listen to Mary in verses 51 through 53. God, she says, scatters the proud. He brings the mighty down from their thrones. He sends the rich away empty, and he exalts or he lifts up the humble, and he fills the hungry with good things. His kingdom is upside down. In his kingdom, the way up is down, and the way down is up. The only way to win in God's kingdom is through losing. What, what is Mary saying? She's saying we gravitate towards the beautiful and the strong and the powerful and the sophisticated and the wealthy. 
but not God. He gravitates toward, and He moves towards the broken and the lonely and the outcast and the downcast and the broken and the needy. As in every Christmas season for the past eight years that I've been here, um, I've, I've found a way to uh, force in a, uh, one of my favorite Flannery O'Connor quotes, um, and I put it at the top of your bulletin. It fits very well with what we're talking about. Let me just read it for you. I love this quote. She wrote, God told the world he was going to send it a king, and the world waited. The world thought a golden fleece will do for his bed. Silver and gold and peacock's tails, a thousand suns in a peacock's tail will do for his crib. His mother will ride a four-horned white beast and use the sunset for a cape. She'll trail it behind her over the ground and let the world pull it to pieces. A new one every morning. But instead, Jesus came on cold straw. Jesus was warmed by the breath of an ox. Who is this blue cold child and this woman plain as the winner? Is this the word of God? This blue cold child? Is this his will? This plain winter woman. The world looks for the summer will of God. Right? Power, status, wealth, all those things we mentioned. But Mary was reflecting on God's upside-down kingdom. She was a nobody with nothing from nowhere. God's own son, the king of kings, he wouldn't be born in a palace to someone from the elite, upper, and powerful class of that culture, but to a poor, plain, winter woman. And if you reflect on this upside-down kingdom, if your eyes readjust to it, it prepares you for a different kind of king, an upside-down king, one who would come and win through loss, right? One who would come and conquer through defeat, one who would rescue through rejection, one who is lifted up but not on a throne but upon a cross. You've got to reflect and connect the dots to what this means. If you're here this morning and you're broken and needy, and if you've hit rock bottom, and you're empty, this passage is saying you're in a great spot. A young man uh, who visited our church last week said to me, with tears in his eyes, he said, you know, this is the first time I've been to church in a long, long time. He said, I've been enslaved to all kinds of addictions, and I am lost, and I'm seeking. And that could be you too this morning. And if it is, this passage says, you're in a great spot, because God's kingdom is upside down, and we serve an upside-down king. Come to him. You can trust him with your brokenness. Come to him and lose so that you can win through him. But what about others of you? Because some of you in this room, you really look like you've arrived. And you better fit the category of the wealthy and the powerful and the beautiful and the sophisticated. What about you? Um, 
Listen, you need to reflect on the upside-down kingdom until your eyes adjust and you see who you really are. Broken and fallen and sinful with nothing to offer this king but righteousness like filthy rags. That's who we all really are and truly are. Come to the upside-down king and win through losing. One more thing, just real quick, and we'll be on to the last point. If you reflect on this upside-down kingdom, you need to connect the dots to your relationships. If God is attracted to the broken and the lonely and the outcast and the hurting, who should you be attracted to in His upside-down kingdom? You want to do great things? You want to change the world? That's awesome. This is where it starts in God's upside-down kingdom, to move towards the broken and the lonely and the forgotten and the hurting and the needy. Okay, third and last, reflections on God's fulfilled promise. This is years ago, but one of my kids was in kindergarten, and for, for her, it was a brand new school, beginning of the school year, and one day when her class was leaving the gym to return to their classroom, she got separated from her class. And um, so later on, we heard the story how she just stood by herself in the, in the hall, and another teacher in the school found herself standing there all alone and just crying. And great teacher, helped her get back to class and all that. And so later on, when we were talking to her, the first question we asked her um, was, were you scared? Um, Because surely that's why she was crying. But she said, no, I wasn't scared. And so we asked, well, then why were you crying? Why were you crying then? And this is what she said. I was crying because everyone forgot me, and no one was looking for me, and I was sad. And just like that, love cuts like the cold wind. That's the end of the Flannery O'Connor quote. And our hearts just pierced, right? I mean, so we start crying (laughs) with her, you know? And later on, I thought, why did my heart resonate so deeply um, and instinctively with a five-year-old um, who was sad because she was forgotten? And I think it's because that fear of abandonment, right, of being cut off, of being forgotten and not mattering, or being rejected, that can be traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the, it, it, this primal, basic knowledge that my sin and my brokenness cut me off from the only smile that mattered, the smile of my Father. So much of my fear in my life that keeps me from vulnerability that keeps me trying to control the circumstances of my life 
or the perceptions that others have of me, or, or, or the fear that drives my obsessive desire for approval. I mean, it, it comes from this deep fear of rejection, of isolation, of being forgotten and abandoned. And Mary, reflecting on the Christmas story, ends up her reflection on the fulfillment of God's promise. That though we turned away from Him, He never forgot us. He never forgot His promise to redeem His people. Mary sings in verse 55, He is He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring and forever. See, Mary burst forth in singing, and you know she had to be singing this with a smile because she was reflecting that this little embryo growing in her womb, it was a, he was a reminder that she and we and Abraham and all his offspring were not forgotten. He never forgets his promise. He was sending his son into the world to rescue and redeem his people. She had to be smiling as she reflected upon this, that Jesus came to bring us back under the smile of our Father. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones, in a book we use for our children's church classes, talks about God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. Why is the Bible such a long book with so many pages, um, uh, spanning so many, many centuries? It's because the Bible is telling you, and it's forcing you to reflect on the fulfillment of God's promise. It's telling you how He moved every event of history to keep His promise to redeem His people. It is the greatest love story ever told. And to reflect on the fulfillment of His promise, it will change you. I mean, what else will show you more clearly how much you you are valued not based on your performance, but in what you mean to the very heart of God himself. It fills you with hope in the midst of suffering to be reminded that all of his promises come true. He can never forget you. It fills you with purpose and it shapes your life to realize that he is never forgetting. And he is at work right now, even when you can't see him, restoring all things in Jesus we could go on and on connecting more dots, um, and we should. That's, that's how we're changed, by reflecting. But let me close with the final illustration. And there are two reasons it closes with this final illustration. One is because it's freezing outside. Um, it was like 28 degrees when I came in this morning. Um, and second, my family went to Disney World several weeks ago, and, and that place is overrun with frozen stuff. Um, and... Um, Here's the story of Frozen, just in case you forgot it, uh, just briefly. There are two sisters, Anna and Elsa, right? And struck by her sister Elsa, in the heart, that Anna is dying. And she's told by these trolls, got to watch the movie. She's told by these trolls, there's ice in your heart. 
put there by your sister. If not removed to solid ice, you will freeze forever. And then she's told this, only an act of true love can thaw a frozen heart. And so the first time I saw it, and everybody else, we all thought she needs to be kissed by the prince. But that's not the act of true love in the story, if you've seen it. Angry and afraid, this guy Hans is about to strike down the ice princess, Elsa, with his sword. But Anna, summoning all her remaining strength, turning blue from the ice that's overtaking her, she lunged in front of Elsa, and the sword fell on her instead of her sister, and she died, frozen. But moments later, Anna began to warm and thaw and came back to life. I'm telling you, even Disney knows the only true act of love that could ever thaw your icy heart and warm you and set you free and change you is true sacrificial love and death. The Christmas story of the gospel, it isn't a fairy tale, right? It's what every fairy tale you've ever read is pointing to. How do we thaw and warm our hearts that are in constant danger of freezing over? We reflect on God's love and mercy. We reflect on his upside-down kingdom and this king who let the sword of God's justice fall on him in our place to win through losing. We reflect on a God who can never forget his promise to redeem his people. What we, what we do when we reflect like that is we take up the gospel and we use it like an ice pick to constantly break up the ice that's regularly forming around our hearts. We reflect and we work the good news of the Christmas story deep into our hearts until at last we are changed and we burst forth in song with Mary. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that is on every page of your word to your people. Father, forgive us because we often fail to reflect and meditate and wonder upon your mercy. We often fail to reflect and wonder at your upside-down kingdom and the upside-down King Jesus. Father, we often fail to reflect and be amazed again and again at the wonder that you fulfill every promise you've ever uttered to your people to redeem us and save us and change us. Father, would you please give us grace that we might pour over and steep in this good news until at last it melts our frozen hearts and we are changed. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.